Hello and welcome to Real Bible Stories. Join us as we deep dive into the historical, religious, cultural, political, and emotional context surrounding the real lives of real people in the Bible and the stories we've all grown to love. I'm your host, Imran Ward, and I'm joined by my wife, Selena. Hello. And our teacher, Ryan Brown. Hey, guys. So today, for this episode, we're going to be deep diving into part one of the real Christmas story. Before we get into it, though, Ryan, tell us a little bit about what Christmas is from your perspective. Right. So um, this one's going to be fun. I, I we, we call it the real Christmas story. So really what we're going to be starting with is a... Um, I want to start with a series of your typical stories that you've learned in Sunday school, but kind of mature them um, for... You know, everybody knows the story of Noah and the ark and, um, you know, the creation story and the Christmas story, but really just kind of take it and say, hey, th- this is, there's, there's a lot more depth to this. There is a, an adult version of these stories that um, we tend to miss because, you know, we just kind of adopt the Sunday school, right? Um, but just a kind of question, because um, I think Luke chapter two in particular uh, will help us solve a modern debate. Um, one of the biggest controversies surrounding Christmas, and that is whether Die Hard is a legitimate Christmas movie. Christmas movie. Oh, um, okay. So, so, Selena, is it? Yay, nay. Have you seen Die Hard? You ever seen Die Hard? Oh, we'll, oh, we'll watch it this weekend. Don't watch Die Hard. It. Yeah. What about you? I would say it is because of the time and the message. Even though the way they go, they go about the message is a bit uh, rambunctious. So, me too. I um, but of course that's like fifty fifty. But Really, I think um, in Luke, one of the things that is primarily being communicated is um, more in line with the theme of Die Hard than it is in the you know in line with the movie Elf. Um, <laughs> so we'll uh, I'll make that case um, here today. Um, but I think one of the we'll get into that in a bit. But um, the other big piece I think that um, if it's not emphasized, uh, you know, in the study is to understand is that. Um, a big element of Luke surrounds the element of joy of what's happening. Um, you know, all throughout the Gospel of Luke, you know, you it, what's very unique is that um, you got the Song of Zechariah, the Song of Elizabeth, the Song of Mary, um, you know, the shepherds and and the angels all, all presenting this this great joy, and um, really that kind of feeds into a longing that Israel had for a new Exodus and a new Passover and God to move again, um, to kind of reinvigorate the, the days of the Psalms, right? Okay. You know, the days of the Psalms were, and they would, they would sing the Psalms, but those were all old Psalms. Like, what are we going to do with a new song? They, they were waiting for a new song, right? And, and Luke really introduces this idea that God is moving. It is exciting. Um, and it, it creates this new, um, um, new explosion of passion of new songs, new new psalms that are okay. being sang. Um, so that's kind of how it starts. But um, what undergirds the story, though, you know, you think a culture cult, culture has hijacked this story, and not only do they emphasize the wrong points, but they also um, add a bunch of things that aren't there and has created kind of a story or an impression in us about what's going on in the story. That's not, so, so they're not only like miss, uh, I would say misfocused, but some things are just flat out wrong. Um, and there's some that have You're some, talking about the, the cultural interpretation of, uh, of the Christmas, Christmas story, story. Right. So, um, that's really what I want to kind of 
um, focus on today. I think it'll be fun. So nice. Okay, I'm really looking forward to that. So before we dive into it, though, we have to lay lay the ground flat. All of all of what we teach has to come from the word. You know, just like we talked about in the intro episode. So I'm going to hand it over to Selena now. She's going to read from Luke 2. Is that Chapter right? Chapter 2, yeah, verses 1 through 19. Okay, yeah. Go ahead and read that for us so that we're all working with the same sheet of music. Yeah, okay. It goes, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem, and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So right off the back, I had a question about verse 19. Like, what does it mean to, like, treasure up those, like, things in your heart? Yeah, so I, I think um, and w- once we dive through the meat and the potatoes of this, um, one thing you're going to learn is that what Mary, well, first, an angel had come to, to both Mary and Joseph, right, in the beginning, um, and they told her, and him, what this baby um, was and, and who he was, right? His name will be mm-hmm. Emmanuel, um, meaning God with us. He'll be Savior. Um, but Mary and Joseph didn't have the complete picture, just like the disciples didn't have a complete picture of what that really meant, what it looked like, how would that be accomplished. So much of what we're going to learn today and what the shepherds actually teach Mary um, leads into her being amazed by the fact of of what of, of of how this is going to happen. And I think, um, you know, I, I would almost put out there that I think the shepherds may have been the very first group of people to truly understand um, how sin was going to be dealt with through the Messiah. 
Um, but they had a, a very similar impression like most of Israel. I mean, they, the expectation of the, un, the coming Messiah was going to be to um, raise an army, lead a military rebellion against um, Rome, who was occupying them, was going to liberate. There was going to be this new exodus, this whole new Passover, this whole new, um, you know, redemption. And uh, But they, they kind of had in their minds that was going to happen a certain way. And when it says that Mary was amazed by what was being taught to her by the shepherds, um, which will make sense here once we dive into it, um, it means that she's surprised by the fact of, of what the plan is, right? Mm-hmm. And she, even at this point, she still didn't. But, you know, it's kind of a, a theme because in the very next narrative, they go up for Jesus' circumcision up to the temple. And um, there you got a prophet and a prophetess who also come. And similarly, um, you know, they received a word saying that, well, one, I wouldn't die until I saw the Messiah. But two, um, he said, what I'm about to tell you is it's going to pierce your heart. It's going to hurt you. Um, so Mary's actually growing in this knowledge of the, the reality that, um, you know, her, her baby was was born um, to accomplish something. But the way um, wasn't going to be the way she expected and it was going to break her heart. Um, very much a foreshadow of... Um, you know, his, his death. Yeah. So, um, but I think that's going to make a little more sense once, once we, we understand all that stuff. what did the shepherds know at this time? Um, cause people miss that too, I think. Okay. Yeah. Great question, Selena. Thank you, Ryan, for the answer there. But, uh, so I want to dive into the notes that we've got here. So just listening to this story, uh, I'm sure you listening out there realize that, okay, so what I may have heard in the movies, what they sing about in the songs may not be exactly what the scripture says. And that's why it's important that we really start with the scripture to get the knowledge first, and then we dive into um, all the historical context and different interpretations that we can have. So right off the bat, why Bethlehem? So Bethlehem is where Jesus was born, but I, I, I know that, or I guess I realize that I don't know too much about that city. Yeah, I think, um, well, first, um, let's place Bethlehem as a place within the context, or the literary context of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, uh, geography is very important. Um, you know, e- each gospel is structured differently. Um, you know, the Gospel of John is not chronological at all, which which trips a lot of people up. So, you know, things at the beginning of his gospel are really probably happening and occurring um, towards the end of his ministry, and um, things that are at the end kind of happen more at the beginning because he he structures it more theologically. You look at um, you know, Matthew, it's, it's more chronological, but it is very um, fulfillment-based more than it is chronological. Mark is very chronological, but it it's more immediate. Um, but, but to Luke, he structures his gospel geographically. So he starts here in Bethlehem, but he's very quick to want to get it back up to Galilee um, and Nazareth, because what Luke is trying to paint in what we'd say is volume one of his gospel, the gospel of Luke, is a progression going from Galilee to Jerusalem. So all roads lead to Jerusalem. He's trying to paint um, his ministry as always going towards Jerusalem. There's, in fact, there's uh, even when they're up in Caesarea Philippi, when um, he tells. Where's that? So that's further north. Okay. Um, geographically in Israel, that's that's actually north. Uh, it'd be north east of um, of Nazareth. So. Um, there's this part in the middle of his gospel where he's actually, they're up in Caesarea Philippi. 
um, where he tells Peter that he's going to be the rock. But then that's also when he tells Peter, stand behind me, Satan, right? That whole narrative is mm-hmm. in Caesarea Philippi. Because, though, it doesn't match Luke's um, idea of structuring his gospel geographically, he doesn't even mention where it's at. So Luke is very oh. detailed in his gospel. He, I mean, he, you know, it was in this year, this was who was governor, this is, you know, he's very, very detailed. But in that narrative, he doesn't tell us where it happened because it doesn't fit his stru- his geographic structure of going from Galilee towards Jerusalem, right? And then when you get into volume two of his gospel, which we call the Book of Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, um, everything goes from Jerusalem out. So mm-hmm. volume one, um, start in Galilee to Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem. And then in the um, Great Commission that Luke records, which is different than Matthew, Matthew says, go uh, make disciples of all nations, baptizing name in the Father, Son, Holy uh-huh. Spirit, right? In Luke, he says, you're to be my witnesses first to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the, the earth. So the, the geographic progression goes back out. The point I'm trying to make is that the literary structure of Luke places matter a lot. More so, it carries a little bit heavier weight than, than in the other gospels. Than in the other gospels, he, okay. he's very deliberate about geography. So, the the geographical places that he mentions is because they hold some sort of significance to the overall theme and point he's making. Okay. So Bethlehem, um, but it, it was important. So if I were to maybe just ask this question first, um, what do you remember Bethlehem for? I remember that they were going to Bethlehem to uh, be counted. Uh, as part of the census, I think that that Rome was putting on a census, right? But when, but I guess what I'm saying. So when you think, when you hear Bethlehem, your mind and immediately goes to what? For me, it's like that, like Christmas. Little, Christmas, right? Yeah. Well, like, why like is Christmas? What happened at Christmas though? The, the Jesus was born. Jesus was so. born, right? So when we think of Bethlehem, we think of the birth of Christ. Um, we, we think about what was born there, right? Mm-hmm. Um. But to, it shouldn't be to anybody's surprise, though, that the people in the story themselves, that was not what they remembered Bethlehem for. Bethlehem was known for something completely different. And and if we understand what Bethlehem, the significance that it held at that time... For the people that in the in, in the time. narrative, that's going to help us understand a lot of the, the kind of the fill-in details that are left or that are omitted from, from Luke. So the first thing... Um, does that make sense, though? Because... What I want to kind of go through is just what was Bethlehem known for um, at that time? At that time, because mm-hmm. that's going to help fill a lot of the gaps in and also show some of the absurdities and some of the impressions we have about the story. So, yeah. um, the first I would say um, I think is really important is that Bethlehem was first remembered for David. So, David represented. Um, when you say David, so when you say David, do you mean King David? King David. Okay. You know, David and Goliath. Um, David the shepherd boy turned king. Okay. Um, Rags to riches story. Um, David brought Israel into the golden age of Israel. So before that, you know, they had judges, and then they were under Saul, who um, God eventually rejected. He chose David, anointed David. David led Israel into the golden age of Israel, um, to which his son Solomon takes over, you know, and, and it's um, a really good, prosperous time. But David was there... Um, you know, he was their their hero, yeah. you know, um, and he was the, it was his dynasty, it was his line that they were, um, that had been usurped. So, so King Herod the Great, um, who who's sitting on his throne, 
is um installed by Rome. Installed right? by Rome. Okay. Is sitting where the line of David should sit. Okay. Um, and that's why, you know, he makes a point even in the text, you know, he went to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. He was of the house and the family of David. So I want you to just think about that for a second. Because um in the lineage in both Luke and Matthew, mm-hmm. we learn something particularly about Joseph. Why was Joseph going to Bethlehem? Because he was with the family of David. He was the line of David. You get into the the genealogy, you realize he is a direct descendant of David, meaning um, when you derive that, who should have been on the throne at that time? Joseph. It would be Joseph. So now just think about this for a second. We read this as the birth of our Savior, the birth of God in the flesh. That wasn't their impression then. What was the significance of the birth at their time? Jesus was, before he, you know, um, revealed himself to be everything that we know him to be. Mm-hmm. At, to them, just alone, you know, Joseph is the rightful king, um, should be the rightful um, king of if Israel. If we're following that bloodline. If we're th- following that bloodline in Christ, being the legal son of Joseph, would have made him the firstborn, also an heir to the throne. Okay. So you have a prince being born, right? Um, this is real important because um, we tend to view it as the birth of our Savior, but they see it as the birth of, the, you know, the rightful right. future king okay. of the Davidic dynasty, okay? Um, is that why the wise men were sent? Yeah. We're going we're gonna to get talk about the wise men in the next podcast. Okay. Hey, That's save, part save, two. Save that for later. Yeah. So let's save that one. Um, but I would say if you think about it this way, though, Often when you read the narrative, they say they show up and there was no room for them in the end. Okay. Right? We kind of get this idea that, you know, they're going door to door and they're like, sorry, no room here. Like, um, if if your town is known because you're of the family of David and somebody who should rightfully be on the throne comes showing up to your house, right? And they say, my wife is um, pregnant. We're here. We need a place to sleep. Are you going to tell who you think should be the rightful king? No. Well, it depends what might happen if you tell them yes. Uh, If they're living in fear of Herod or Roman retaliation. They could, but that wasn't really... Because think, he was up in Nazareth, right? He came down. This is, you know, they're tribal. This is a family. Okay. You know, so... um, Dude, I don't think that Israel as a whole was necessarily always tracking the line in heritage, but the line of David was. Mm-hmm. Um, because another piece of this, of what Bethlehem was remembered for, was a promise that God had made. So um, if I could just quote a couple scriptures here, this is Second uh, Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. But he says, um, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, speaking to David, he says, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne for his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. Mm-hmm. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Then Jeremiah 23, it also says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king 
who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So um, so with that, though... Um, That's very direct. Right. You, you have not just a remembrance of a, a longing and a desire to go back to the days of David, right? Being living free with David's throne, but there was also a promise that from his... Um, that his line would be reestablished and that that kingdom would rule forever, mm-hmm. right? So they would have known who is next in secession and kept kept track of it, track of that of line, that right? Promise because of not just the the history and the 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 pride there, but also the promise that was made, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, um, they even kept lineage in the temple. So anybody visiting the temple, which should have been every Jew at one part or another of the year, could have went in and looked and said, "Hey." Who would be sitting on the throne now if we weren't oppressed by Rome? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so like I said, it may not have been as widely understood across the entire country. Yeah. But within Bethlehem itself, these people knew they, they, they knew their history and they knew who was who in that family and who should be on that throne. And the reason I bring that up though is that people go door to door, you know, looking for an end. Do you really think that they would have turned away in, in their view royalty? No, I don't think so. You know, so that's probably not what that text is talking about. But that's kind of the the cultural picture, right? Is um, that's what the song's saying, right? There's no room (laughs) left in the end, and it's like that. That's probably not what's happening at all. Um, I do think I have an an idea of what's going on there. But um, but here's another one though. Um, This is Micah five two. It says, "But you Bethlehem of Ephrath, though you are small among the clans of Judah." Out of you will come for me the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old and from ancient of times. So, you know, Bethlehem itself, they they had no cultural, political influence. You know, they're, they're this small, you know, farm town six miles outside of Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, beyond um, the fact that David came from there and that there is promises to Bethlehem in Scripture itself— um, they really have no other influence or significance, Bethlehem itself. Um, their whole existence was really just anchored on, like their economy, for example, was very dependent on Jerusalem. It was just feeding the Jerusalem religious system. Um, okay. So so with that, um, those are the first things you need to understand that a, a Jew in Israel at that time, what's on heavy on their heart is that David came from here, and there's a promise that that line would be reestablished here, right? Um, so they would have certainly known who who Joseph is um, in relation to that family, and then therefore who Jesus would be in relation mm-hmm. to that, right? Even if not from a uh, like son of God perspective, from a like princely should be on the throne. Literally royal. He's the royal family. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's confused me in the past. In the past, because like. Jesus not being like blood in that sense. Um, but it's yeah, he's the legal son, but not the by blood like bloodline. Son. Well, and, does bloodline go through the mother or the father? So there, there's a couple of things with this. Um, when you when you look at Luke and when you look at Matthew, the genealogies are different, and there's always a kind of these big um, debates about um, like. So, so for example, some will say, well, Luke is the line of 
Joseph, Matthew's the line of Mary. Mm-hmm. And um, so one shows the legal line, one shows the bloodline through Mary. Um, I actually don't hold that view. I actually think they're both of Joseph. Um, culturally, they they still would have never really probably gone through through Mary. Um, mm-hmm. But according, um, you know, I want to say it was Eusebius who had actually interviewed descendants of Jesus's actual, you know, family, the line of David. Um, cause, you know, he had brothers and sisters and he had relatives, you know, mm-hmm. but, you know, he was a human being. Um, and, and they asked them, how do you square the two genealogies? And what the oldest documented explanation to this is that it was a um, leviate marriage. So this is a custom um, unique to, you know, that portion of the world, but also more common than, than it would be now just because of healthcare and stuff. Mm-hmm. But essentially it's this. If you have a... Um, if you are married, you know, you and, you and Selena are married. You don't have yes, any, we are. you don't have any children. No, we do not. If you died, alleviate marriage would say that your, um, next of kin or closest relative would take her as his wife. So I don't know. Do you have a brother? I do have a brother. So your brother would then step in and assume and be her husband. Hey, that's alleviate marriage. Moving up in the world for him. Um, and the reason why that is, is it's to protect your family name. I see. Um, now, if you two are married, you have children, and you pass away, and you have a son, she would be free to go marry whoever she wants. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Um, another thing with that, by the way, um, to, to the first one, though, if you die, you don't have children, you would marry her brother or his brother. Um, he would give you a son, but he would carry the name of um your husband right. yeah. because um the point is to keep his name to live on so that his name doesn't so die the line doesn't die right but not just the line but your name i see so okay. even though by genetics right it'll be the same line since he my, he's my brother but the name but carry your name. name so there's two ways um you know one follows the legal name meaning um he carries the name of so essentially, Jesus's great grandparents was alleviate marriage in there. There's actually two, mm-hmm. um, to where, um, and we we could probably do this in another podcast when I have all the notes in front of me because it is kind of a little extensive. But essentially, it's yeah, essentially what uh what happens is is that he has a great grandparent who um they were married, didn't produce a son, married the the brother, produced a son, but carried the name of the initial right. Yeah, that's one genealogy. But then there was another alleviate marriage where they had a son. She married whoever she wanted. I think it was Hebron. And through that line um, is the bloodline, right? So essentially it is a legal and bloodline, but it's a legal and bloodline of Joseph, not, not, of, of, not of Mary. Not but but the point being, though, is that um, all that, though, showing that lineage shows um, by blood and by legal right. So by blood coming from David um, through Nathan, but by legal coming um, through Solomon. So, again, the the royal line, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So those are the first two things, because this is going to get kind of layered, right? Okay. Um, The next thing Bethlehem was known for was shepherds. Um, It was a shepherd community. Okay. Um, I mean, we gather that, obviously. When you um, say shepherd, you mean, like, they their primary thing was, like, farming, and so by farming they had shepherds. Sheep. Sheep. Um, 
In particular, though, they were farming. Sorry, like sheep herders. Yeah, but they were a special kind of shepherd, though, um, primarily because of their proximity to Jerusalem. Bethlehem, not just in terms of the quality of sheep, but in proximity geographic to Jerusalem, Bethlehem was known to to produce all the Passover lambs. So these shepherds aren't simply just shepherds; they are what they would call priestly shepherds. Okay, Um, what they would do. As you know, being normal shepherds doing what shepherds do, but when a lamb was born, now you're going to see the the association here pretty quick, right? When a lamb was born, what they would do is they would take that lamb, and they would um, the the term swaddle could mean one of two things. One is swaddle in a blanket, um, but the same term is used to apply to like uh, tie down, like to almost like make clothes like and, and yeah, restrict and tie down. Okay, but the term they use is swaddle, so. The idea is that what they would do is they would swaddle the um, the sheep, and then they would put it in a manger, and they would inspect it for spot or blemish. If you remember, the Passover lambs had to be without spot or blemish. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would the reason they they bind them and they swaddle them is so they don't move around, bruise themselves, and hurt themselves if they are a good sheep without spot or blemish. If they're without spot or blemish, they would go into the Passover flock. If they had a spot or a blemish, they would go into the normal. You know, right. sheep flock. Yeah, that's interesting. So, um, so just understand that, right? Because that's what these shepherds did, right? That was part their job. They would, lamb was born, you go inspect it for spot or blemish, okay, um, for the Passover, right? Um, yeah. But what's also, uh, but when you read, if you were to go back in, in verse 12, it says this. It says, when, when um, the angels come to them, uh, because, by the way, why the shepherds, right? Like, Everyone says, well, they were lowly. I was like, well, there's some truth to that. And they're poor. Well, there's probably some truth to that. Um, they weren't highly regarded in society. There is truth to that as well. I um, mean, I think those are all beautiful points, but that's not the point of what was going on. Because, um, you know, you go into someone, well, they were outcasts. They weren't highly regarded. Well, why don't the angels appear to tax collectors? Why don't the angels come and announce themselves to... Um, you know, the beggars on the street, right? Yeah. Um, that's not really the, the main point. The main point is that they're shepherds. Um, and if you look in verse 12, it says, um, bring you good news and great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born to you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, okay? So you t- the angels tell him, a Savior has been born. But watch verse 12. It says, and this will be a sign for you. Okay, so whatever follows is a sign for them. This is something, it's a it's a post trying to guide them somewhere. Yeah. This is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in the manger. Right? So that's their sign. The signpost teaching them a Savior's been born and here's a sign about him. Mm-hmm. You're going to find him swaddled. In the manger, which has a very deliberate point for the sh- for those shepherds, right? Um, what we talked about. Because what would happen if a Passover lamb was born? They would then tie it down, make sure it has no spot. They would or swaddle blemish. it and be in a manger, right? Yeah. So now, now, if you were to keep reading here, um, it says the shepherds began saying to one another, "Let's go straight to Bethlehem." They knew exactly where to go. Okay. Um, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Um, So something big outside of that, when they had seen him, 
They had made known the statement which had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed. Mm. So what's so amazing about being not just, I mean, it's amazing that angels would come and proclaim, right? Um, but that's not what this says. It says they made known the statement which had been told to them. Yeah. So what's amazing about a statement about a baby being swaddled lying in a manger? Well, that arcs back to the promise, right? Well, but to the shepherd, though, right? So they're essentially going and showing up to inspect the Passover lamb. They're checking the Passover lamb for spot or blemish, and yet it's not a lamb, though. It's Jesus, who is the Savior. That's what's amazing about it. Um, So really, from the very beginning, the shepherds knew um, the sign that was given to them was that a baby is born, and they're being charged to go inspect the Passover lamb, per according to the law. Passover lamb has been born, go inspect him for spot or blemish, and it's a baby, you know, and that, that's that's part of the the amazement behind that. That's but it gets incredible to see that that line of thinking there, based off of the culture and the law at the time. Right. Because you, you don't get that context at all with the reading. No, you don't. Uh, here's another f- further one, though. You ready? Um, you know, we we had already read Micah five two. That's the big Christmas promise, right? That mm-hmm. you Bethlehem, um, though you're small among the clans, I'll, you know the great promise, right? What we tend to miss though is a chapter earlier in Micah, which is part of that same prophecy. Yeah. There's a little more details given, okay? Because um, here's the other question: It said that the shepherds, when they received it, knew they went straight to Bethlehem. They knew exactly where to go. We feel in that like, oh, they're looking in and looking in stables, which it, there were no stables. They they were kept in caves, like, um, but but it didn't it doesn't say that they went seeking out all across Bethlehem. It says let's go. They knew exactly where to go to Bethlehem to find Mary and Joseph. Okay, well, how do they know where to go? Right, is that where the North Star comes from, or is that the wise men? That that's that that's that's wise men. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, we'll, we'll talk about the the star next mm. week. So how do the shepherds know where to go? There's this whole other piece here. Um, this is Micah 4. So this is just right before Micah um, 5, 2 that we just read. Okay. This is verses 6 through 10, okay? Part of the same prophecy. It says, In that day declared the, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away from a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that from that day and forever. Now, right here, verse 8. But now, as for you, you watchtower of the flock. Okay? Remember, watchtower of the flock. Um, in Hebrew, it's called Migdal Eater. Okay? Okay. You, Migdal Eater, watchtower of the flock. Stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. From where? Migdal Eater, Tower of the Flock, okay? Um, then verse 9, why do you now cry aloud, have you no king? Now it's talking about a king, okay? Watch Tower of the Flock, there's association to the king. Has your ruler perished? Then look at this other association, that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. That's really interesting. Okay. So now you got um, Watch Tower of the Flock, you got... Um, um, a king being king born, born you, the, you, you uh, have, pain of labor. right? Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city and camp and open field. But the, but the point is, is that right there in that same prophecy of Bethlehem, of the Savior being born in Bethlehem, 
you actually have the exact place. It says the Watchtower of the Flock with this allusion to childbearing and the king being born. Okay, Migdal Eater. Um, so let's move on to the next thing, okay? Because you're going to see how this all ties in. It's really cool. Okay. Um, while Bethlehem was remembered for for shepherds, they were remembered for, of course, David and the promise. They were also, it was known for something, another big biblical event, and that was the death of Rachel. So if you remember, Rachel was the wife of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Oh. And they fathered the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And um, that you're saying that's where she died? She died here. Well, I'm going to read it to you. This is Genesis 35, verses okay. 16 through 21, okay? Um, you're going to see this all come together here in a second. Then they moved from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Epriath, Bethlehem, mm-hmm. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty, almost like Micah 4 talking about, okay? So you got an association backwards, but now you, but he's talking forward in Micah. Yeah. Right? So um, just keep that in mind. As she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. As she breathed her last breath, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni means, by the way, son of my trouble or son of my my death. Mm-hmm. Okay? But his father named him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. This is really cool. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. Um, but um, verse 19 so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Epriath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. So Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder, the watchtower of the flock. Okay. So you see it? And so that's back in Genesis. This is Genesis. Okay. Migdal Eder was... Re- um, What's the time between Micah... And Genesis being written. Well, let's see. Between Micah and, and Christ would have been about, I mean, I think it's about two to three hundred years. Mm. So, I mean, you're talking, Jacob's before Moses. I mean, you're talking yeah, 1,500. I mean, this is some time, okay? So, you got Rachel who dies. He builds this pillar in honor of her where she died, Migdal Eater, mm-hmm. okay? And Micah, now it says, now you, Migdal Eater... Right, talks about a king, talks about childbirth, which is a play on what was happening back in Genesis 35 with Rachel. But Micah's not talking about the past. He's talking about something that's going to happen in the future, right? So just see how this is all starting to come together. Rachel was also, I know I'm quizzing you all here, but you know what Rachel also was known as? I don't. She was a shepherdess. What do you mean by that? She, She looked over sheep. She was the daughter of Laban. You know, she was the one that Jacob had to labor over for seven years to marry. Uh, he got tricked okay. yeah. and then had to work another seven years mm-hmm. for her. Um, so 14 years of labor for Rachel. To like, Rachel, Rachel was the love of Jacob's life. Yeah. She just died. Um, but she was, yeah, she was a shepherd. She was a shepherdess. Mm-hmm. Now, think about this as well. Who was David before he was king? Also he was a shepherd. also a shepherd. He was a shepherd, mm-hmm. right? So... David was from Bethlehem. Where do you think David would watch his sheep from? Probably Migdal Eder, the same tower resurrected in honor of Rachel who died there. You see, you see how the uh, right. Yeah. So now you fast forward to Luke chapter two. You got shepherds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, watching sheep in the field. Okay, so it's they're not in the tower; they're in the field, 
It says a baby has been born. You'll find him laying in the manger, and this is going to be your sign, swaddled and lying in the in the manger. So let's go straight to Bethlehem. Where did you think they went straight to? At the, the Migdol Eater, right? Migdol Eater, probably the Watchtower of the Flock. It was a big tower that sat on the highest hill that looked over the, the fields of Ruth and Boaz. Mm-hmm. It was a great, great location. Also acts at as, as a, a watchtower for enemies. What's that? Like It gave them a sense of direction, but it wasn't Well, exactly it, you right. were able to watch all the sheep in the field because they from had a lot position. of sheep okay. from that tower because it was on the highest point looking over the fields. So you can see, and if they see trouble, they were able to get up and... Get over to those. Get over to them, right? It was yeah. the that's why it was the watchtower, the watchtower of the flock. Um, okay. So these shepherds, the thing about this watchtower though, is that you had multiple levels. All the places where you live, so the shepherds would sleep there, and then at the very bottom, at the base in the cave, is where um, you had the manger where they would do their inspections. Right. So now just think about this for a second. There's a lot of little elements coming together on this, right? But the shepherds, those same shepherds, would have lived and worked out of and been very familiar with Migdal Eater. So when it says you'll see him wrapped in the manger, you say, let's go to Bethlehem, let's go to Migdal Eater. There's something, the inspect- the there's something there that apparently we need to go see, and they see a the Savior man. there awaiting their inspection at Migdal Eater, right? Um, big big element that we, we often miss, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of things here. One of the things, if I could just talk about Genesis 35 for a second, though, because I think it, it kind of, just this is God just, I think it's great. All this time, there's a shepherdess, and then you got, you know, David being a shepherd. You know, Christ says, all of Scripture testify to me. It's like all the way back in Genesis 35, he started using shepherds as this one elected place in Bethlehem. So he says, this is going to be the anchor to which things change, right? It's it's the anchor by which a lot of our uh, conceptual understanding of our relationship with God uh, changes too. Because look at this. This is one of the, I think, really cool. Um, now, if you remember Jacob, Jacob was a trickster. You know, he wasn't a good dude. He wrestles with God. God, after he wrestles with him, God changes his name. Now, the, the translation to Israel, uh, you know, often people just say that it, it just means God rules. Um, the most, I think the most literal interpretation would be God conquers, which I prefer more because Jacob had to wrestle with God and then eventually get conquered by God before he can move on. And I think that's a true statement of all of us, right? Like we wrestle, but we come to a point where we have to be conquered by him, um, to take on that new name. Right. But then that's Jacob, right? Rachel's dying. She names her son Benoni, the son of my trouble, the son of my death, the son who killed me. Could you imagine being called that for the rest of your life? Hey, the son who killed your mother, come here. Go clean your room, right? (laughs) But look what Jacob does. It says Jacob, um, he didn't accept that, right? He said, um, but his father named him Benjamin. So, Right here, the love of his life dies. She names him the son of my trouble, but he says, just as there was a point where God took my name and changed it, here you, Benjamin, son, I'm not going to call you by what was or what occurred then. I choose to call you by the son of my right hand. 
um, completely changes it. But then look at this. So Rachel died, was buried on the way to Epriath, that is Bethlehem. Um, but then it says, verse 21, over her, or I'm sorry, verse 20, over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. Okay. Over her term, Jacob, but verse 21, but Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. You see the name change? Oh, yeah. Jacob was who he was before. He's the one who buried Rachel, set up the pillar, but Israel moved beyond Migdal Eder. So now you, you have Migdal Eder acting not just in terms of the connection with shepherds and prophecy, but acting at the very beginning as almost this anchor pivot of moving beyond to grace. It's like the transition. The transition to grace, right? So what do we have happening? You have the Savior being born, um, the watchtower of the flock, awaiting inspection by by the priestly shepherds to inspect the Passover lamb who was just born. Mm -hmm. And just like um, Jacob decided not to let Benjamin be... Um, defined by what his mother named him and what had happened. He chose to move beyond Migdal Eder. Your name is son of my right hand. My name is Israel. It's no longer Jacob. They moved beyond the other side of, of grace. And it's there where Christ was born that also brings us to the other side of grace that gives us a new name and a new life. Um, it's a really cool just how it was integrated all throughout biblical history, all leading to this one point in time, right? Um but one of the things, you know, so a couple of questions then. If that is, and you know, and just to be clear, there are many people who would disagree with this. Um, there are many other, you know, possibilities, but this is the one I think is the most obvious in terms of uh, substantiated by scripture. Yeah. Um, but it, it leaves kind of big where, some questions. Where you start though. with the knowledge and then try to extrapolate. Right. A conclusion from there, and I'll start with the conclusion. Sorry, start with the conclusion, try and justify it with right. scripture. Um, this is the one I think gets you kind of closest to, um, you know, what, what scripture has been painting all the way back in Genesis 35. But it does leave a few questions, right? So, um, well, why were they there? When you say they, who do you mean? Um, Mary and Joseph. Why was Jesus born there? Well, I already threw out. I thought it was because of the census. Right. Yeah. Well, in Bethlehem, but why Migdal Eder? Right. So, um, you know, this is like kind of the, you know, so first off, if Joseph is in Christ, you know, Jesus would have been received as royalty and it says there's no room for them in the guest room. Um, well, where do you go? Right. Um, so let's first tackle the first one. Cause I think there's two possibilities. One I find more plausible than the other, but they're both, I, I would say, you know, equitable. Right. Um, one, the whole family was coming for the census. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph. All of the tribe um, of Judah who lived in Bethlehem and of, of the line of David were coming. So anybody who still lived there, they were all like sharing space, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we say in, but it's like, do did they have ends in that traditional sense that we think of, or sorry, I guess modern sense that we think of ends now? Like, did that like actually a motel exist? room? Yeah. Yeah. It's like he wasn't walking up to a Motel 6 no. saying, like, do you have space? And like, so we're, we're booked full for no. next week. Yeah. <laughs> no. Like, the, the first one would be is that when it says guest room, that, you know, each home had a room for guests. This is the guest room. Hosting was, like, very important. Yeah. For you to be able to host. Hospitality. Yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's your family's the same way, too. You know? 
It's like they would never turn uh, turn us away. Yeah. yeah. So one of two things is possible then. When it says there's no room for them, um, some suggest would be that, you know, Mary is pregnant, they're betrothed, but they're not married. Right. Well, and people people kind of know this. So they could have been like, uh, there's the you know, family gaga, right? Like, um, you're out sleeping with another man, you cheated on Joseph, you're pregnant with this other man's baby, but now Joseph's having to and they just like, we don't want you here. And they just and Joseph to her defense, right? Um possible. Um yeah. I think unlikely also, though. A fair conclusion to come to. Right. Um, but I would say um a more likely is really grounded again in Levitical law in the culture. So when a baby is born, anybody in the room, um, or really in that structure, when the baby's born is considered unclean. So when for like a boy, for example, on the eighth day, you would take him up to the temple to get circumcised. Mm -hmm. What the parents also had to do was provide a purification offering because they're now unclean. Okay. Okay. Now, um, Luke makes a point to let us know that when they went up, um, it's the very next narrative. When they go up to the temple, they offer two do- two doves as according to the law. And when you read Leviticus, two doves, that is the poor man's offering. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was supposed to be a goat or a sheep. But if you're poor, then you can say, all right, well, two doves will, will cleanse. Mm-hmm. So it says that they gave the two doves so they were poor. Okay, mm-hmm. So we know their economic status is that they don't have money. Um, when they give the poor man's offering. Well, if they were in a house where a bunch of family who's coming out, coming together for the census is living, and she gave birth there, what would have that have meant for everybody in the house? Everybody else would be unclean. Two doves. Two doves. Two Two doves. Two doves. doves. At best, right? Uh, So you're putting a huge economic strain on your family. Um, And I think it's more in the spirit of what we know about Mary and Joseph um, in terms of their heart and grace for people, um, is that it was probably an act of mercy. He's like, no, we're not going to put you guys through that. Um, we'll find somewhere else. Well, where where do you go? Well, we have Migdal Eater, which is on our family property. There's already a system of making that area clean because they're priestly shepherds. Things are being born there all the time. Mm-hmm. So they can't be going up to Jerusalem every day giving sacrifices, right? So they already had a process of cleansing that area, right? So people sleeping on top, but there's this like unclean area where things are born. So, you know, what I would suggest is what probably happened is they went to Migdal Eater. There was extra rooms there where the priests would sleep. That's where they're sleeping. By the way, another thing we get wrong, um, and it actually even says it in the text, but this isn't some dramatic like, Rain pouring. It's nighttime. She's going into labor. I've they seen just show up to Bethlehem. Where there's snow on the ground, right. and it's like, wait a minute, this is <laughs> in the Middle East. Right. Wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, but nowhere does it say that they were having. She was going into labor as they showed up to Bethlehem. It actually says the opposite. It says that they were there a while. Right. So they're staying somewhere a while before she has the baby. Mm-hmm. Um. So I think as they were staying in a lot of those rooms in Migdal Eater. And uh, when it came time to have the baby, they went down to where the lambs are born because it's creating no additional no financial friction. strain on anybody. 
Um, and, and you learn that. I mean, if you look at both Mary and Joseph, you know, two people that are amazing. Um, one, you know, of course, Mary, you know, angel comes, you're going to conceive a child. Well, I haven't been with a man. Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. She says, I'm the Lord's servant. But just understand what that means for a woman in that culture to be pregnant with some, you know, with a baby. And it's not your husband's. There's a lot of shame that comes with it. Well, I mean, there there's a death penalty associated mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, uh, if she Joseph knew that. hadn't taken her on and said, like, I will accept this child as my own type of thing. Well, that's not what he, re- well, he doesn't do that originally, right? Yeah. Um, it says Joseph went to qu- divorce her quietly. Right, that's true. You yeah. want to believe it? If you if you went on a deployment, you came back. Selena's pregnant. She's like, but it's by the Holy Spirit, and an angel came to me. You'd be like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, I'm sure. Um, but here's what's I think beautiful about Joseph, though, is that Joseph it says that he went to divorce her quietly. You know, by by law, um, you know, Pharisees in particular, um, they would have probably called for her to be. Be put to death, yeah, you know, and instead he shows grace and mercy. And you know, over and over in the gospel, you hear, you know, Christ says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, The whole you guys have missed, you know, the whole law exists for man, man doesn't exist, um, for the law. You know, he says that with the Sabbath, you know, the, the Sabbath was, um, um, created for man, not man for Sabbath, right. Same thing with the law. He says, you miss the entire intent of the law. The intent of the law is people. It's love. And because you have missed that point, you have no problem showing more mercy to farm animals who get stuck in a well than people, right? This mm-hmm. was Jesus' big problem during his ministry with, with the religious elite. So here you see Joseph, who could have, to the full extent of his culture and the law, Killed her in his shame. He was probably embarrassed. He was angry, I'm sure. I'm sure. But he showed Confused. Yeah. intention of grace and love and mercy. He says, I'm just going to divorce you quietly. Right? Like, that, that, that's mercy. Yeah, which shows a lot about his character. Right. It, and it only it would only be have to be somebody like that who yeah. could do this, right? And it's after that when the angel comes and says, no, she's telling you the truth. Right? Yeah. Um, it, it's a phenomenal testament of both their characters right Mm -hmm. but in that same spirit it makes more sense to me that they show up to an inn or not an inn uh the family house and says hey like we're going to show mercy we're we're not going to have the baby here we'll find some we'll figure something out and i think they that went to migdal eater um but the overall point of this though yeah let's tie this all together all this together okay you have migdal eater being established in bethlehem um at the death of rachel it was known for um, what was, what died and what was buried there. But now we understand it to be, a, we remember it for a place where, for what was born there, mm-hmm. right? Um, she was a shepherdess. Fast forward from that same, get a shepherd boy, King David, brings him into the, that's who God chose, right? He chose David. And, you know, David had his problems, but always had a heart for God, um, brings him into the golden age of Israel and then makes a promise that your your kingdom's going to go away, but I'm going, I promise you I'm going to reestablish it. I'm going to raise up a root, right? You fast forward to Micah, you Migdal Eater, you Watchtower of the Flock, you know, with an association of a king um, and, and childbirth, right? 
um, but a strain in childbirth, just like Rachel, but speaking forward, and then you get Luke chapter two of a woman, right? Childbirth, you know, all there. So, um, but the, the main point is this beyond the joy that we talked about in the beginning is that the primary message that is all being based off of the impression of what everybody knew Bethlehem to be at that time was that um, it wasn't just that a savior was born, but that from the very beginning, from the very, very beginning, there had always been, um, it had been communicated that the way that savior is going to be a Messiah to Israel was through death. That's why I said at the very beginning, die hard is more in the spirit of the true Christmas story because Jesus was literally born just to die hard. Yeah. You know, it, it was, um, that was the point in which he came. The shepherds knew this and they actually tell Mary, um, Hey, this was our sign that he was swaddling in our inspection manger. And just what, what you know what that means. We are inspecting him as the Passover lamb to be without blemish or spot. Wow. Right. So to her, she's like, well, I'm amazed by that, that you received that sign. And this is what the sign that was given. Right. But then it starts going. She gets into the next narrative with, you know, Simeon, it says he's going to pierce your heart because he's going to go die an excruciating death. And you, Mama, this is going to pierce your heart. Because that's what the Passover lambs are for. That's what, the Passover, that's what the Passover lamb is, right? A Passover lamb that's accepted is born and put into the flock literally, and their whole existence at that point is being nurtured and fed to, be, be, sacrificed. to be sacrificed, right? Um so the, one of the biggest points that Luke is making is this is why it came this way. And not just that a, it's a fulfillment, but that Christ is fat, satisfying the law in that regard. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, you know, in depth kind of uh, um, more complex story that I think people realize, but um, I think it's beautiful nonetheless. Right. Um, that the whole purpose of why he came um, the way he did. You know, does that make sense? I mean, yeah, it does. I definitely didn't really see it that way. Like, I didn't even know you can have like shepherdess. Like, whenever you see pictures, you're a shepherd boy, but never a shepherd girl. I've never seen that in my life. I didn't even think that was a thing. Yeah, shepherd. Uh, I'm trying to. I think it's um, Genesis 29 is where it speaks to her Talks being her. being the shepherdess. Yeah, yeah, that was her occupation. You know, little little detail that we yeah. miss. You know, but. Becomes very relevant, and things that are more important to us in the light of Christ. Just understand that hasn't happened yet. So all those details, the patriarchs, right? Jacob, the the father, you know, Israel himself and his twelve sons who made up the country. You know, you know, they they said you know Rachel is birthed in the the entire nation, right? Yeah. Um, so part of their history, but that's pretty. I mean, there's plenty of fantastic women throughout the Bible too, and we'll have plenty of time to to dive into uh, some more of those stories too, as we go through these, these different real Bible story uh, kind of podcast dates. So, so, you know, beyond just, but don't miss though, Hey, the Passover lamb has been born, but he's also a savior. Mm -hmm. And what was met with in this entire time in Luke is joy. This isn't something that we should look at and be like, man, you know, like, Oh, that's so unfortunate. Yeah. Feel guilty or feel, you know what I mean? It, It should, we should have ex extreme joy at the fact that um, it wasn't just that this happened to the Son of God, but this is why the Son of God came, you know? 
Um, but the last thing I think that'd be important about this whole story and takeaway, we would just ask, you know, what, what side of eater are we living on? Um, are we remaining in what is dead in our burials, right? Um, you know, Paul talks about how um, we have put to death, you know, our, our, our who ourselves and we're alive in Christ. Like he actually uses the, the imagery of, um, you know, back in, back in, with Rome in particular, if you murdered somebody, a, um, let's say it was a slave who didn't really have rights, but it was still considered wrong. Um, what they would do is that they would shackle a slave, um, the dead body and shackle it to you. Oh man. So you're literally walking around dragging the dead body. Right. And, and, and Paul uses that same imagery. He says, I'm, um, I forgot the actual technical Greek word for it. He's like, I am like, you know, a murderer who has put myself to death. I'm alive in Christ, and yet I'm still dragging my dead body behind me, right? Um, and I think many believers kind of tend to to kind of live um, on what is dead and what is buried, right? Um, if you if you believe and you are living a resurrected life in Christ, are you still going back? and reflecting and remembering what was buried. Going back to the old sin, the old habits, maybe old hurts, you know, or, or, or are you moving what Jacob did and became Israel and moved beyond Magdala Eater? That transition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He, I know, in that moment, we don't know how much time he spent there, mm-hmm. burying his wife, building this pillar. He He may have stayed there and sorrowed for a long time, but there was a transition where he moved beyond. Where he moved beyond and moved forward. And pitched his tent. Right, which is, and in, in you have Christ here coming. He says, hey, you guys remember what was dead here? Now you're going to remember what was born here. Who offers us Migdal Eater. Yeah, and we couldn't have gotten to that. No. If he hadn't moved on to what God had for him. Right, and, and to complete the mission that he was sent to do. And Yeah. Um, you know, so what side of Migdal Eater are we... Um, are we living on? I mean, are we still defining ourselves and living life based off what what should be put to death and what is dead? Um, or are we really living that new free, um, living in the freedom that Christ offers and what he came to do as our Passover lamb, right? Um, I, I, and that should make us excited, the fact that we can. Um, unfortunately, some people still live in, by what is dead, you know, um, and we, they still hold their old name. You know, even in condemnation and guilt, people still say, um, um, notice what it says, Jacob set up the pillar of what died, but Israel moved beyond, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the way I can put that is like sometimes Ryan, right, still sets up these pillars of things that have been buried, right? There's still sin and there's still emotions and feelings that I go back to and I want to live in. Um, it's like saying, um, you know, Ryan sets up these pillars of, of what I have put to death. Mm-hmm. But then there's times, though, where eventually um, who I am by, by Christ's name, you know, disciple, um, the bride, the um, a co-heir, yeah. the definition that God has named me as, right? Born again, I move on to that new life. I move beyond Migdal Eater, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest um takeaways from the story beyond just a lot of the details that surround it, um, which is interesting because it's different. Most people don't pick up on it, but ultimately the big mi- the, the message is um, 
that something very significant occurred there that brings us from what is dead to what to now what to is new alive. life right all right and thank you so much for that amazing teaching uh i'm just gonna go ahead and close us out here and remember this is part one of that real story of Christmas. Like all we talked about today was what the shepherds knew. This was all context surrounding why the shepherds knew to go directly to Mid- Midgar. Say it? Migdal Eater. Migdal Eater. I almost Ta- said, almost said Midgar, but that one's, yeah. that one's copyright. I can't say Midgar <laughs> like that. But why they knew where to go to find the baby that was in the major, in the manger. But uh, again, thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in to Real Bible Stories. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to be notified each week when we upload new episodes. Real Bible Stories is produced in part by Palms Church in 29 Palms, California. If you would like more information or want to check out archived sermons and Bible studies, please check out the church website at palmsbaptistchurch.com or check them out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Real Bible Stories can be found wherever podcasts are found. Thank you again, and we will see you next week.